everybody, what's up? It's Chase. I want to welcome you to another episode of the show. That's right. It's the show, the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live, the one and only show. Now, I'm sure you listen to a few shows, but I want this to be your favorite, uh, maybe one of your favorites, although there's a lot of good stuff out there. And this episode is going to rock your world and pun fully intended. The reason it rocks is because my guest today is an actual certifiable rock star. Uh, You may remember a band called the Presidents of the United States of America. They took the world by storm in 1995 with an album, a self-titled album called the President's United States of America, and they had songs like Lump, She's Lump, She's In My... Now, you remember that one. And Peaches, Millions of Peaches, Peaches for Free. Um, I won't sing anymore. I'm sorry. I promise. I'll leave the singing to Chris. Um, Chris Blue is a dear friend of mine, and as uh, he is an absolute pure artist. He and I have been friends for a long time, so this, the conversation is damn intimate. We talk about how fame came nearly overnight, of course, like all great successes, after 10 years of working in the trenches. We get to hear his story from relative obscurity through a couple of of moments in time that changed his outlook, one including he was roommates with Beck and uh, just got to, I think, work with Beck early on in Beck's career ignited Chris and said, wait a minute, I can do this. He came back to Seattle and kicked off a music career that went from zero to 100 miles an hour, selling millions of albums, and only to realize in the wake of that meteoric success that it wasn't actually all it was cracked up to be. The music, the integrity of the art, his vision for continuing as a music maker and a a multifaceted artist, still completely intact. And we get to trace his journey through uh, through all of those different um, aspects of his career and landed ultimately in his most recent project called Casper Baby Pants. That's right. Now, if you have kids, you probably know Casper Baby Pants. If you do not, you have to run out and buy Casper Baby Pants album right now because what Chris has shifted to is his, his love for music is still 11 out of a 10, uh, and it's but it's focused now on making music for kids. So... If you've ever had that fleeting feel, fe- fleeting feeling of, oh my gosh, I just captured lightning in a bottle. I found some success, and I want to make it continue. This episode's for you. If you've ever wondered if you were cut out to do the thing that you were supposed to be doing on this world, and you didn't know how to reconcile that with everything that everybody else wanted for you, this episode's for you. In short, I think you're gonna love Chris's perspective. Super, super smart. Very, very sweet. And we've also been friends for a long time. We do recount a story where we did a music video together, which I can't wait for you to hear. Um, we also have a lot of friends in common. We dropped some names. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tease that out here. But uh, I think you'll enjoy some backstories, and I know you'll enjoy Chris's perspective on the art of finding your art, of discovering your own voice and how to make a living and a life doing what you love. So I'm going to get out of your way, but before we do, just a super Check quick this word out, from y'all. our sponsor. This episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show is sponsored by Creative Live for Business. This is different than the regular old Creative Live. So whether you love, passionately love where you work, or it's sort of like meh, or on the other side, if, if it's a creative wasteland and you want to inspire some change in the place that you work, you're not alone. Studies say that three out of four people, that's right, 75% of people say they're not living up to their creative potential at work. If so, I want to introduce you to Creative Live's newest product. It's called Creative Live for Business. And in a nutshell, it's a way to get access to all of Creative Live's content for your entire team and or entire company. 
and maybe bring in some much needed energy and innovation to that team or company simply by going to creativelive.com slash teams. Now, Creative Live for Business is already in service of several of the top creative firms on the planet and a powerhouse list of many of the Fortune 100 top brands. These brands care about creativity and innovation. And you know what? These companies pay for this for their employees. So it doesn't matter if you're a team of five people, 55, or, or if there's 50,000 people in the company. If this sounds interesting to you and you want to check it out, either you can check it out or refer your boss to Creative Live by sending them to creativelive.com slash teams. Remember, most forward-thinking companies, they prioritize things like creative skills, like design thinking, leadership, collaboration, wellness. And again, with Creative Live for Business, you get access to all that taught by some of the top instructors in the world all on Creative Live. So again, you can visit or send your boss a link to creativelive.com slash teams to learn more. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, like I was saying before we started rolling, this was, I was watching the show. I love the show. And I just was like, I need to be on this show. Why am I not I, on the show? I'm I friends with Chase. I live down the street. Right? I love long, deep, detailed answers yeah. to simple questions. So here I am. That's the nature of the, <laughs> no, honestly, the nature of I this know. is like in, in a world that was increasingly short <clears throat> and TV bite, you know, yeah. five second answers, like how can we expand the conversation? Yeah, it's always, it's always been a pet peeve of mine. Back in the president's days when we were promoting, well, when we were responding to the popularity of the first record and then yeah. promoting subsequent records, we would do these interview blocks where we'd have 15 minutes or even 10 minutes with each media outlet. Uh, and it would be a phone thing. I'd be home and I would just get, you know, four hours of <laughs> 15 an minute interview increments. every 10 minutes. And it was so frustrating because yeah. Only the dumbest answers really worked. That's all they wanted was like shiny little pills. Yeah. And, but I was dying to talk about things, you know, interesting things. Yeah. And uh, never got the chance. Anytime, so. ideas take time, right? They take time to ex oh, yeah. expound on. Um, yeah, sure. Exactly. Dialogue. Well, we, I think that um, I'm going to start off with a story. Okay. So. Is it the three bears? Because I've heard that. <laughs> the story okay. is. Uh, there was a, a three-year run where um, I hosted a party here oh, in yeah. Seattle. That was only three years? Yeah, it was a three-year. Okay. It, it felt like a long felt time. Like, <laughs> it felt like an institution. <laughs> it felt like a decade. Um, and we would, <clears throat> it's, it was basically, a, uh, uh, we'd close down one of the big streets here in, in North Seattle. It's called Wallingford. Yeah. And it dead ends right above a lake where I have a studio. It's where my photo studio is. We're in the Creative Live studios right now. but You're we, still in that location. Then. We have that location. Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm currently subleasing it, but because we're, you know, we're, we've mm. got this place. But so short story too long already. We have always had musical guests because music is a really important part of um, culture. And, and it's always been a huge passion of mine. Know a lot of people in the industry. And we close down the block, we build a stage, the backdrop is the city. Yeah. And we do this party every year in September and it's a party for basically six or 700 people. We feed everybody. It's a really, really fun time to get Seattle's creative community out. And unequivocally, no, and we've had some, some hitter bands. Unequivocally, no questions asked, nobody <laughs> dominated the hell out of that party Gee. like and i'm this is like not even blowing smoke thanks man i it was just 
I mean, I'd seen your shows before, but your ability to get people excited from the <laughs> stage is unlike anything I've ever seen. So Thank you. Thank you. I always, you know, I sang along <laughs> when all the hit records came out and uh, we, we've had a lot of mutual friends, but to watch you in, like to be able to, you know, sit on the side of the stage yeah, and yeah. watch you perform for, you know, when you, it's not 60,000, it's 600 very passionate people yeah. was, but it was unlike anything I've ever seen. And I don't know how you do it, but. Thank you, buddy. You're, you're, you're good at your craft. Oh, I appreciate that a lot. In fact, <clears throat> I think the 600 people is where that comes alive more than the 60,000 or the yeah. 6,000. Because you can really, you can kind of go off the rails a little bit or you can mess something up. And, you know, currently when I do my Casper Baby Pants shows, I'm doing, you know, bigger theaters now, but I still hold on to a few little library shows because they are so weird and um, <laughs> so uh, open. Anything goes, you know, like I did one in Forks. I went to Forks, Washington and played for about 11 kids in a library. And one of the kids uh, requested a song and I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to finish the show with that. And don't, hold on, don't worry. And it's going to be good. And I keep going. And then about halfway through the show, I check in with him. I'm like, how you doing? He's like, I'm tired. <laughs> So I wrote a song called I'm Tired right on the spot for him and everyone's dancing except him. He's just sitting there all tired. <laughs> anyway, stuff happens. Yeah. So anyway, the smaller shows are more electric and alive for me because it's like, uh, I don't know, you can see everybody's face. At some of these small Casper shows, I get to know every kid's name. You know, if there's the one time I played in Renton on a, a day when there was a Seahawks playoff game for instance. And so nobody was there. <laughs> Renton loves their Seahawks. <laughs> for sure. Not like, uh, you know, I mean, everybody does, but uh, they really do. And yeah, I had like five kids at that one. Amazing. But they're memorable. I love them. The most. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the thread <clears throat> that I wanted to pull on is, so the people who are watching and listening to the show, they're largely, um, they identify as creator or creator curious. They like, ah, they, yes. they, there's a, a goal to, um, to tap into that thing that they're not doing, or if they're doing it, they're, they want to go, the way I talk about it is go from zero to one or from one to 10. Like you want to start something or do you want to get better at it? And yeah. a place that I tell people to look when they're like, I don't know, man, I'm doing this desk job or a thing or, that I don't really love. Mm -hmm. And I usually tell people to look in their childhood. There's something, there's some clues there when we, we didn't have all this programming and cultural like beat down basically telling us who to be what to do how to think <clears throat> and, yeah and so watching you like own like truly own the stage in a way that i you know i i have very there's almost no comparison was that as a kid was that did that is that a craft that you practiced and honed was it natural were you always on stage was it is it all around music because there's such your, the vibe, the presidents, and of course at Casper Baby Pants, there's so much performance it felt like. That's interesting. I guess my mind goes back to my very first experience where I really um, fell in love with a piece of music. And that was when Sgt. Peppers came out in 1967, June 1st, 1967, for wow. all those who care. Um, my Older brother, Paul, who's 17 years older, bought it for my parents that Christmas. And they didn't understand it. I was two and a half. I was born in 65. I took that record and just like played it into the ground. And my experience with that record wasn't about uh, idol, like, uh, like 
worshiping the Beatles as a phenomenon. Yeah. I knew it as music. I knew it as a creative experience that made me feel like I was traveling. You know, the songs, that album is such a trip. You know, there's yeah. dirty and clean and uh, sounds and, uh, you know, heady things and uh, psychedelic things and marching bands and <laughs> sitars. And I mean, the whole world was in that album. And so my initial experience with music was definitely not about fandom, but more about travel with music. And so I think that stuck with me to the point when I became creative myself and started writing songs and developed that. Over the years, I, I definitely fell into a concept where the song isn't really the thing. I'm not the thing. It's how do I make a groom full of people elevate? That's the art, yeah. or that's the product. Yeah. The song is just like a hammer driving a nail. The, it's the experience. The experience is the desired end game or whatever the, the product or whatever yeah. the word is. So I definitely have learned over the years to kind of carve songs into a shape that I think will make that, that uh, tactile moment happen for an audience. And that's why it's so fun for me because I do all the hard work away from the stage to kind of feel like, oh, here, this song, it's like a gift. I'm gonna give yeah. this. Oh, I can't wait to give this gift. It's not about me like hashing out deep emotional things or people having to, and I'm not saying that's not a it's acceptable. It's very valid, for sure. Yeah, I mean, people have relationships with performers where it is very personal and, um, and where that performer's story and what they're going through informs the audience's emotional experience, right? Yeah. But I'm definitely about, I want to be invisible. I, I want to be the man behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz or whatever. Just in, in front of 60,000 people with well, a guitar. Well, I know, I know. Well, see, <laughs> that's actually what never felt super great about the presidents. I loved what we achieved, and I'm, I don't want to disparage it at all, but inside me, I was having an experience where um, the fame aspect was absolutely not interesting to me at all. I didn't want to ride that pony. I, I always had this metaphor when I was growing up and thinking, oh yeah, I want to be famous. I want to like, you know, make it. make it or whatever. And my idea, my visualization of making it was there's a room. And if I can just get in that room, you know, that's where all the cool people are. And that's where the, everything's fine and you've, you've made it and you're, you're done. And so I finally got in that room uh, metaphorically. And what I noticed immediately, like emotionally inside myself was, there's another room inside that room. And, in, and I knew inside that room was another room and another room and another room. And that the idea of having to kind of reprove myself and really dive in and play that game of being a personality that, you know, keeps your flame alive for however long you can was not me. Like I couldn't do it. <clears throat> People like, you know, Mick Jagger, can do it or whoever, you know. <laughs> but there's a cost to that too. So look, anyway. Look at Mick Jagger. <laughs> I know. He's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's rode hard and hung up wet. <laughs> uh, anyway, I immediately felt when we hit it that um, the air kind of went out of our sails for me. Or that's not really the right term. I just knew that there was something else I was supposed to be doing. 
that was the, the very direct message from my gut to my brain was like, congratulations, it's awesome that you've made this success, but there's some other thing you're supposed to be doing, keep looking. So I was like, okay, little voice, I guess I'll keep looking. And I kept looking for like 15 plus years on the side. And uh, as I <clears throat> tinkered with other sounds and I was even starting and stopping other bands while the presidents were going and then we broke up for five years and I did it then and the sound got simpler and simpler and more and more kind of acoustic and innocent and small and then I met my second wife Kate and her artwork just like shot me like a diamond in the forehead to quote Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now. Uh, and I was like, that's it. I want to make music that sounds like it's coming from the planet that that artwork is coming from. Wow. And so I did. I made a couple songs directly inspired by her art. And that's when this like cartoon light bulb went off over my head. And I was like, kids music. That's what I was supposed to be doing the whole time. And the beautiful thing is it's the same core as the president's. It's the same like molten core, which is silliness, you know, um, innocence joy, um, you know, fun, connection, people, but without the outer core of the, that the presidents had or the outer crust, which was innuendo, sexuality, and kind of, you know, dirty, dirtying up the innocence with a little, with cool and grown-up themes and stuff like that, you know. So once I got rid of the grown-up themes and the loud drums and the loud guitars and the bombast of a rock show, I was like, ah, there I am. I am the innocent core. I had been kind of subverted into this other way and it was very stressful for me because I could not write those songs that had innocence and innuendo kind of playing off each other. That was an accident. That whole, I mean, all the good songs on that first record were out of, I was coming out of a kind of a dark period. My huh. 20s were kind of a dark zone. And so my joyous self was battling with my dark experience and that made that friction happen in that yeah. music. And that was just unrepeatable. It's like, you know, giving a paintbrush to a monkey and blindfolding it and telling it to paint a painting and then being like, monkey, that's amazing. Do 10,000 more. And the monkey's like, I don't know what I did. And I'm like, monkey, you can talk? And he's like, yeah, you never asked me any questions before. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of, that. I mean, in context of what we're trying to talk about, I would definitely urge creative people to, I think there's a fork in the road or constant series of forks where you have a choice between following who you really are and who you think the world wants you to be or who you think others want you to be. And it's okay to take either fork with your eyes open you know, and understand that, okay, I'm gonna go down here because I, like my son is in like five bands up in Bellingham and he's, you know, he's bass in one, he's lead guitar in another, he's synthesizer in another, and it's really great. I'm, I'm proud that he's like trying all these things, but slowly but surely he's like, all right, I don't wanna do that and I don't wanna do that. And that ability to experiment and then be honest about the, rea the results will propel you so much faster toward your place where you can be at peace with your creative notice, endeavors. Yeah, notice that you can't intellectualize that. Like, that's an no. action, right? <laughs> I think this is, like, yeah. so many people that yeah. I know, and me included, and I can say that I'm doing that right now on a bunch of things. Like, I'm, rather than, I'm, I'm you know, standing in front of, 
lots of people telling them exactly how to think about their creative careers or their lives or based on my experience and the experience of watching millions of people do it in the Creative Life platform. And I still forget that it's really only in the doing that you know if it's yeah. if it's right for you. It's like your, your son is a great example. Right. Yeah, is that you, something you coached him on? No, no, not really. I mean, I guess as he grew up, he probably saw me doing a lot of different things. I mean, <laughs> him growing up, he saw me experimenting in my studio, starting a band with Sir Mix-a-Lot, putting the presidents back together, doing a weird hip hop duo with one of Mix's protégés, doing kids music. <laughs> so. He probably witnessed me doing just what yeah. I said, you know, just trying and reacting and seeing how it feels and stuff like that. So, yeah, it must have been osmosis. Again, words. You know, I, I, I am a firm believer, like, show, don't tell. Even in songwriting, you know, I want to I show what this little world looks like. I don't want to tell you what it, what it looks like, you know. So that goes a long way. When... when Early success, let's go back to early success, because I think regardless of whatever genre the people who are watching and listening to our show here are into, everyone has tapped into that effortless joy. Yeah. When you're doing the thing and it just, everything starts to work. And time disappears. Yeah. You become like a dog who doesn't know that a whole day went by. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that's whether it's called creative flow or there's probably 10 different you know, cultural, culturally appropriate names for it. What you landed on a genre, I don't know if you can, you can't even call it a genre, you created a genre hmm. of music mm-hmm. with the presidents. Kind of, yeah. Like, you know, this, this innocence and play and I, want, I, want, I don't want to, use up any more words. I want you to describe it. Like, yeah. Well, we, we later came up with the perfect title for our genre. Ooh. It's funge. It's fun grunge. <laughs> funge? Funge. Ooh, I don't know if I, do I, I think I got some funge yeah, over here. Yeah, funge sounds like something you might need is some high, uh, high intensity cleaner for, but so does grunge. So, so true. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Funge. Um, so I'm, I'm sorry. What no, you, how did you get query? What's your query? Allow gentlemen. me to submit a new query. Uh, restate your query. <laughs> um, how did you land on that? Is this was it oh. concocted? Was it like mm, this no. is a thing that's out there, or was it like this well, feels good to play, and this is that part of that experience that I'm trying to create? Like, yeah. How did you land there? It was a little bit of a combo, mostly. It was just this constant, I guess for some reason, my relationship with music, and maybe it goes back to that two and a half year old Sgt. Pepper's uh, fascination, but my relationship with music has always been to transcend myself and be, I call it like transparent. I want a transparent relationship with my, with my music. I want it to really represent who I am. So. That was the goal, really. Is but and I, presidents were close, but not. It was who I was at the time, but yeah. not who I kind of really am. Yeah. Um, so really, the yeah, the drive, the sound, the particular sound just came out of me trying to make music that is honestly representing my soul or whatever, and that's what came out. Lump <laughs> is what came out. Yeah. Now lump is weird as a as a uh, song story, it uh, was a little fragment that I made up. I don't remember making it up. 
So what I used to do is I had a little micro cassette recorder, right? And I okay. record little bits and bobs all day and all week and all month. And then when that tape was filled up, filled up, I would um, put it on while I did something else, like do the dishes, clean my room, whatever, fold my laundry, and kind of wait for something to grab me. You know, not listen to it like trying to make something out of it, but wait for something on the tape to make me go, oh. Hey, that's good. Yeah, yeah like, oh, that feels good. And so there I am on the tape going, she's lump, she's lump, she's lump, she's in my head, just the chorus. And I went, what? What's that? That's interesting. I don't, and I don't, I, usually when I hear those little bits, I, like, my oh, mind I was, goes back, oh yeah, I was in that room and that day and blah, blah, blah. I had nothing. I could not remember making it up at all. So it was definitely me, but, um, so maybe that's the most pure form of yeah. being creative because I wasn't trying to do anything. I was just trying to make something catchy that I thought people would enjoy. But that's a fascinating process. You're just creating, but you're recording the creative process. Yeah, the shards. I call it raw poo. So I have a playlist in <laughs> iTunes that's called raw poo. And it's got like 5,000 things in it. And so even when I'm making Casper songs or whatever, I still do this. I put it on random and do the dishes and something popped up the other day, some weird little, like it, I bought an Indian drum in Boston in the late 80s and I made these little jams and one of those popped up and I suddenly saw an army of termites marching toward my house to eat it. And I wrote this Casper song called Termite that is amazing. And it just came out of hearing an old fragment. So that's another thing I would say to creative people is don't censor yourself. You know, if you wake up one day and you feel like writing a song or doing a drawing or a painting or a photograph that is not your usual thing, just do it and file it away. Because I can't tell you how many times I've arrived at what I think is a great creative destination and I look back over my flotsam and jetsam and I'm like, oh, there, that, 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 those all apply. So let's, I'll use those to make this blossom. And then, okay, that's, okay, didn't work out. I'm gonna move on to the next one. Oh, oh, this is starting to grow. Okay, let's listen back. Oh yeah, that, 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 let's pull it in. So it's like I'm always writing my whole life's worth of music. I might be writing music now. I just bought a 12 string and I'm writing these funny little 12 string guitar songs. I don't know what it's for. 10 years from now, I might be a folky. <laughs> wow. I just don't know. Well, there's something I love hearing about different creative processes and this is one I have not heard. So allow me to drill in a little bit. Sure. What appears to me to be genius. A lot of people record their fragments or, or I don't know, scraps. Yeah. They're just like, oh, that's good. Like the equivalent for the painter is a doodle or sure. a, it's a phrase or whatever <clears throat> for a writer. Yeah. In your world, it's a, I don't know what you'd call it. Raw poo. Raw poo. <laughs> raw poo. Um, so you're, you're capturing these raw poo moments. <laughs> Yeah. But to me, what's actually more fascinating is the reconsumption yeah. of those things. Yeah. Because I would say that I literally have tens of millions of photographs, maybe not tens, but 10 yeah. million photographs. I've got a couple hundred terabytes, not far from here, servers yeah. just humming away. Yeah. But I don't have a mechanism for revisiting. Yeah. That and to me, that background we just talked about, like, I'm waiting. I'm playing this stuff and I'm waiting to, to have it recapture my attention. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. How did you figure that out, that that was the thing? I don't know. I just... The I, subconscious part is just what's fascinating to well, me. I think before I became... 
I mean, these days I've got a good sort of routine going. I do Qigong, I do meditation every day. I've got a dialogue going with my ego, with my other self, you know, the chatty narrator scripting part of your mind mm -hmm. that's not about just being in the moment. I'm not trying to get rid of that, but I've got a good dialogue going with it. And I think my early version of that dialogue was this concept of my gut and my brain, like the conversation between instinct and reason. Mm -hmm. And I used to write songs about the gut and the brain and try to capture that idea. It, they always came off a little sophomoric, but, so I never did anything with them. But um, I don't know, I guess that's part of that transparency urge is to yeah. get that dialogue, to, under, to be, to be um, listening in on that dialogue all the time yeah. and on that channel. And uh, part of that is not inhibiting the gut. Yeah. The brain, or the, the logic the tries to inhibit the intuition. And that's like you talked earlier about how when we grow up, we have all this baggage. Well, what I really think is happening is when you're very little, you are enlightened. You're experiencing the world the way an enlightened person experiences it. Like a little tiny child doesn't know this is a glass and that's water. They see it as a you know, shape. field of shapes and energy. And uh, so over time, you lose that and you know that's a glass. And so you have expectations about how it's gonna behave. You've logiced out what's gonna happen. Here. Do you have a blower? This Do you is, have a leaf blower? <laughs> yeah, like if you have a leaf blower and you decide to run it right during an interview, you know that that sound is gonna get on the lavalier mics and be part of the interview. Yes. That's right. But it's context, right? It's and that's context. where the gritty, this is the... But a baby poo. might think that that's a tiny airplane with monkeys in it flying around in the other room and they're like, <laughs> and you're like monkey airplane what are you talking about you know like so over time you lose the concept that that could be an airplane full of tiny monkeys but i never lost it i'm trying to hold that hold right. on to it so it isn't about sloughing off everything you learn just understanding that you have you still have the gear in your gearbox called infancy and you can put your gearbox into that gear and try to see the world through innocent eyes and then everything becomes alive like those couches over there are having a conversation they're like I have more people sit on me because I'm softer you're not I'm softer no I'm the softest couch in the whole world shut up I'm the softest couch in the whole now I could write a song called the softest couch in the whole world it could be about a couch who's trying to prove how soft it is by traveling the world having people sit on it I don't know. That's but so this is probably that, won't go anywhere. But this is that intuition, and then you make that song, and then you're like, I'm gonna park it. Yeah, park it. And then years later, it might be, oh, that's not supposed to be about couches. That's supposed to be about lizards in the jungle. It's supposed to have a jungle vibe. And okay, brrr, here we go. But the seed of that conversation, that idea of a competing couches might be, like the energy behind that might is a real story, but it's about being silly. So. I don't know, man. <laughs> uh, no, this is awesome, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a radical juxtaposition because to me the the that is a beautiful way of thinking about the creative process, and not. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give us one more little offshoot here, and then I'm gonna sure. put a pin in it. So I want you to to finish the thread of this brain overriding your intuition. Oh yeah, well that's I mean the chatter, the scripting, like you know, 
I don't want, I shouldn't write a song about soft couches because yeah. that is unusual. <laughs> exactly, and that happened to me. I have, I have a little scrap from Boston, late 80s or early 90s in Seattle, I can't remember, but I'm, I'm writing a song and I had, all through college and after college, I tried to write these songs that were about ideas, you know, like um, conceptual kind of ideas or just romantic girl songs. But I constantly wanted to sing about monkeys. I just was like, little monkeys in the sunshine. And, and then one time I am I'm writing this song and I start singing about monkeys and then I start singing, why am I always singing about monkeys? Those are not real songs. I can't sing about monkeys. I'm telling myself that I can't follow my own intuition. And that was a, that little recording really was a big moment for me because I was like, no, I think I can. And then I stumbled into a bar in Boston and this guy, Spider John Kerner, was playing a 12-string guitar in the back of the bar all by himself, kind of an elderly gentleman, and playing these like, you know, kind of um, stompy, folky songs, but kind of groovy and swampy, all about animals and food and bugs and, you know, nursery rhyme type themes, but with this music that had real integrity and old, you know, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, if that old gentleman can do that music and sing about those themes and make it feel so joyful and so, you know, uh, solid and real, I could do it too. And so that was my moment of permission, Spider John. Years later, just to close the loop, Jason Finn, drummer for the Presidents, didn't tell me, but he booked Spider John to open up for the band at the Showbox one year when we were doing our Pusafest stuff. And Jason called me one day and he said, uh, tomorrow you are going to the airport at uh, you know 6.30 in the evening to pick up Spider John. I was like, what? So I got to pick him up, hang out with him, play wow. with him a little, talk to him about songwriting, tell him my story and introduce him at the show and take him back to the airport. And, Anyway, wow. so that, that guy, that really like blew it open for me as far as like understanding that I, I wasn't able to give myself permission to be silly in that way, but he did just by being himself. And he's still a huge influence. I mean, I still, he's like a bridge between super old folk music and he was part of the like folk revival in the 60s in uh, New York except he was really into old blues at that time. And then he kind of one day realized, why am I trying to sound like an old blues guy? I'm not an old blues guy, I need to find my own way. And he started resurrecting these old public domain songs and giving them a groove. And so he, he's a huge influence, but huge. That's the, the journey that I'm, I'm always on and I'm trying to help other people figure out is this journey for their own personal voice. Yeah. Because as a creator, yeah. that's really all, like, that's where all the gold is. And right? I believe that everybody has one. Yes. Creativity is not a special, you know, thing that you just some people don't. have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Everybody, I just read a great book about creativity, and it's the main idea behind the book is that almost every act of being alive is a creative act. Just choosing what you're going to have for dinner and making it is a creative act. Yes. You know, shopping is a creative act. They're all, it's all creative. How you interact with people is, you're, you're using a lot of the same kind of parts of your brain. That's so we're all, yeah. you know, it's not a special thing. It's the special thing comes when you then take it and 
do the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing and you just you tease it out and work it. Yep. That's the only difference between people like us and people who are regular people who think of themselves as regular. not creative. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm yeah. like not creative. Like yeah. everything you, <laughs> every, yeah. Not Anytime true. you're putting two new ideas together in a in an interesting way. Yeah. It's really hard work. You just got to yeah. work. Yeah. If you okay. want to do it. So this as we're helping like hearing your story of finding your voice knowing that there were moments where through watching somebody else express themselves you you felt like you gave yourself permission mm. because wait a minute this guy i like this music i'm having fun the people who are here are having fun maybe that means that that's if, if if i'm seeing that that gives me permission to experiment and that's part of what's like stealing from you know like what is it good artists imitate great artists steal yeah like, yeah. like that there's this permission. And I think most folks are running around going like, oh, I can't find my voice. Well, your voice, the first way you figure it out is by imitating. Oh, and they yeah. go, that doesn't work. Try, you're trying on different shoes. You're, you're like, yeah. what does it feel like to be in this kind of music? No, this kind of music. What was it like when I was a kid? What did I enjoy? And when you talked, I loved what you said earlier on in, in the opening about how the the at the time the president's music was this reflection of Playful and goofy and uh, funge. Funge. <laughs> um, do you feel like that? Do you feel the the presidents captured you entirely? Oh, at the time, yes. Because again, like my twenties were a dark zone. I was having some bad years, and that little joyful version of myself was trying to struggle out, but it was going through all these layers of, of story about limitation and sadness and stuff. And so that, that first album really, to me, just like, yeah, it's a snapshot of my internal struggle. And the incredible, overall though, the joy wins on that album, obviously, because it was about, it was made after I moved back to Seattle. I woke up one morning in Boston, totally sick, like I had eczema because I was eating the wrong things, which I now understand. I was just living on pizza and beer and noodles and butter. <laughs> and I was having that, a yeah. system-wide breakdown and I woke up one morning in the winter in the cold and frozen and I was just like, why am I here? I'm from Seattle. I gotta go home. I gotta go back. And so I bought a little van and unbeknownst to me, the carburetor was stuck so I could only go 53 miles an hour. <laughs> and I went 53 miles an hour all the way down to the bottom of the country because there was no heat in the van and it was January and all the way across the bottom of the country and all the way up. And that trip ended with me arriving back in Seattle and just feeling this like rush of like belonging and suddenly roots came out of my feet and I was like, I can, I can just grab life here and I can be alive and invest. And all that joy made the, made the music flow out. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it's really, Seattle really was a writing partner and just being home and feeling the air and the atmosphere and the water and the mountains and the people and, you know, Speaking of the you know, intuition great. thread that we were pulling on earlier, was mm. that when you woke up in in DC or sorry in Boston, Boston, was that a was that a just pure intuition to go back to Seattle? Yeah, yeah, it was like a message, like 
you are you need to go home. <laughs> you are falling apart and you need to go home. And so yeah, that was a very very clear all, right. all the intuition, that stuff that we just went through, to me is where all the good stuff is. I'm gonna juxtapose this. We're gonna go back to the thing I said earlier. We're gonna crank it 90 degrees, which is the music industry. Da 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 da. So, I think for the you know, anyway, certainly our culture does a really good job of uh, of putting our rock stars on a pedestal. They're literally on stage, <laughs> right? And yeah. And we identify with them, and part of why we do is because they mostly are vulnerable and playful and sad and all the things they do. They do all those things very publicly. And, and yet there's this machine in order to make us familiar with those people that comes along and says, you know, it, it knights you. <laughs> and says, okay, great, you get it, especially in the 90s when you first yeah, got Yeah, I was going to say that, like... It's different now. That's very different now, yeah. And I think different for the better in, oh, in, yeah. in many, many it's ways. It's democratized. Mm -hmm. But, so for you, you, you got back from Boston, you wrote a bunch of songs. How do you go from uh, a dude in a closet writing yeah. songs with a couple of buddies to, you know, having a... a platinum album well it was by focusing on a couple things as a band we focused on an idea where if any one of us didn't absolutely love a song we just got rid of it and trusted that a better idea would bubble up in its place the goal was for all three of us to look down at the set list and just be like I can't wait to play every single song Oh my God, this is going to be so good. Again, the gift. Like yeah. we wanna, and the way, I don't think you can give the gift, even if your gift you're trying to give is to help people uh, swim around in sad waters or, or you know, talk about overcoming huge odds or whatever. You can't do that, I, I don't think, unless you look down at that set list and feel that like uh, just overwhelming desire to share, you know? Yeah. So that was one thing we did. Um, and we just really focused on, again, like extending the idea that the song is not the, the real art. The art is how the room elevates. The art is how a, like 60 people at Mo on a Tuesday night and us levitate. And uh, so that, I think that concept was in there. And then, you know, we, um, we just worked really hard at being good. Early on, we I we talked. Yeah, we talked about like yeah. we can't try to play this music and not be really good musicians because then it's just it's you know it's a hack. It's jokey yeah. and it's not well executed and that's not going to go anywhere. So we wanted to really like Dave's a great guitar player. Jason's excellent drum. Jason's drumming. He was able to follow the vocals. You know, he would listen to the story of the song and support the story and really make it. You know, because I've always felt like that's the most important part of the song is like the visual. Because Sergeant Pepper's, yep. I was being taken on this journey, and I wanted to take other people on a journey. So focusing on all that made us a really great little funny band, and um, the timing was part of it too because the scene was right? pretty heavy. And um, I remember watching the MTV Video Music Awards in 1992. I was living with my parents, and I was watching the. Video Music Awards and four tracking a little bit and and watching, you know, the grungies receive uh, awards and play live on the show and I was like, and it sounds th this is 
atypical because a lot of times people ask me, like, did you plan, did you, did you, you know, have a, like, plan for making this work? And I didn't, but I did have a moment where I remember talking to the TV and going, all right, it's time to lighten up. It's time, this right. scene needs, like, a clown to come crashing into it. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to be that clown. So there was a little premeditation just at that moment. Yeah. Anyway, all that comes together and we just decided to play as much as possible. Again, doing yep. and feeling. Doing it and seeing how it feels. And so we did it and it felt great. And we did it again and it felt great. And we did it again and it felt great and then again and it great. And pretty soon that, that fan base starts to grow. We get the same faces and they know the songs and they're singing along. We're like, okay, this is cool. And then Jason was booking Mo at the time, Jason Finn. Yep. And so he's like, I'm just gonna put us I'm yep. just going to book the presidents as much as I possibly can and see what happens. See if it dies or grows. And it grew. And then Bumbershoot Weekend, 94, I believe, uh, or 93, no, 94, uh, we played an ASCAP showcase at Mo, And to me, it was just another show. But I didn't know it. But there were seven major labels in the audience. And we had our core little group singing along. And so you just got to imagine those major label people looking around like, Whoa, this like, is a movement. This is not about just the band. This is the room. Yeah. And again, that's what I was after mm -hmm. the room. So I don't know. I guess if you pull back from all that specific story and talk about how it relates to creativity, it would be specifically, too, with songwriting. I like to tell songwriters think about what you want people to do to your music. Do you want them to take a nap? Do you want them to make out? Do you want them to walk down the street with a smile? Do you want them to dance together in a room? Do you want them to dance at home alone? You know, whatever, whatever yeah. it is. And I even say like, do that with your body. Like move your body the way you want them to move their body and then write from that, you know? Like write, you can reverse engineer back from the crowd and the audience. I think you can do that with visual art too. Yeah, for sure. You know, what do you want them to feel what do you want them to s take away well not even take away it's more feel yeah what do you want that what do you want to go have what do you want to have go off in their body like a lot of thinking a lot of feeling both whatever you know so so you're in the room seven major labels yeah a mutual friend of ours yes. walks up to you one M of them mika salmi salome and Mika, for those who don't know, was uh, at, uh, he's on the board here at Creative Live, longtime friend, and uh, I ran to Barcelona to recruit him to be the CEO, <laughs> was our first CEO after we got the company off the ground a long time ago. Amazing human, and he walks up to you at a bar. This sounds like a joke, right? And what was the what was your first interaction with with like labels? Gee, I I really don't remember. There's so much about that time that was a blur. What I do remember is playing that show and waking up the next day, and the word was we had seven offers from seven major labels, and we had to start dealing with it. And Mika was one of them. Yeah, Mika and Josh Sarban also. They were kind of both at Columbia and kind of. Yeah. Doing the thing with us. I think Mika was the guy that roped us in and Josh yeah. took over once yeah. we were kind of, yeah. you know, a candidate. He was the one that kind of whined and dined us more than Mika. Um, but Mika was the door opener. Yep. As I remember it. Yep. I could be wrong. <laughs> I'm known to be wrong about the, the mid-90s. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was blurry. 
But, uh, I, you know, so I can't, I can't, I'm sorry, but I can't speak to no, it. I don't no, remember. But I, I think, the, I, I, think the, I do remember talking to Mika in Austin, Texas. We did a showcase in Austin at South by Southwest. But I think that was after the ASCAP thing. I just, I don't know. Not required. Not Dave required Dieterer either. is the encyclopedia of uh, chronology when it comes to this stuff. So. How did it make you feel more than the actual events? Like you remembered playing the show, you'd built up this following through act of just playing as much as you could, and then you wake up one day and you have seven major label oh, offers. Oh, it's exhilarating. It was so awesome. It was so <laughs> awesome. Because I was being myself. I wasn't putting on an act. I was really being who I was. And that's when the things clicked. And I was super proud that I'd kind of figured it out. Was there a time before that when you weren't being yourself and it wasn't yeah. easy to figure out? You know, to, to some degree. Like, again, I was editing. I was editing out the silliness, the silly lyrics. I remember when I started playing with Beck, um, and I met him and I moved to LA and I, it was the Mellow Gold record and there was a song on Mellow Gold car, called Beer Can and the lyrics were so ridiculous and, and about monkeys and pigs. My brother and I used to sit around playing Legos singing about flaming pigs and monkeys when we were little kids, like parallel play, we'd just be like chattering songs. And Beck's lyrics reminded me of that parallel play stuff. And um, so I took a page out of his playbook too as far as oh, I can get away with this silly kind of stuff. But there was a long period where I felt like I couldn't, yeah. where the songs had to be kind of, I don't know, I wrote, I wrote quite a few songs about that dialogue and about ideas and about, you know, then just about lustful girl things, like grown-up sexy things. Uh, <laughs> so it was either sexy or conceptual. <laughs> and in... No, no animals, no monkeys allowed. No, and then... In finding your voice, being you, success happens. Yeah. And let's just, I don't want to, I don't like the, the millions of albums. And I, I, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I watched the Peaches video. Oh, yeah. Where you're playing in Griffith Park in LA and there are peaches everywhere and it's a cool overhead, uh, overhead crane shot. And then all of a sudden, ninjas come out of the trees. Yep, that was Roman Coppola. So Francis Ford Coppola's son, Roman, made all our videos to a point for a couple of years. And uh, which was great because the ones he made that were really good were amazing. And the ones he made that were bad were so bad we never aired them. <laughs> we actually threw away a $120,000 video because it was just not very good. Anyway, the ones that worked were awesome and working with Roman was fantastic. And that was his idea. He'd been sitting around watching ninja movies and he's and we were all on a phone call with him and we're like well am i i, I kind of had this like i want to be outside in nature under a tree and you know i don't know a peach tree you know obviously and there's silence on the other end of the line and he's like how do you feel about getting attacked by ninjas and we're all like yes <laughs> absolutely so he took the tree idea and the ninjas and smashed them together and that was it we got attacked by ninjas it was so fun to shoot it was like you had to shoot every shot, you know, separately. So like, all right, this shot, your ninja's gonna go like this and you're gonna fall backwards. I'm gonna shoot that from the back and from the front. And then you're gonna, you're gonna get up in this tree and jump out into an airbag and we're gonna eventually play that backwards. And 
So it was just all this like jigsaw puzzle stuff that got put together. It was cool. So cool. Yeah, it was really, really so fun. So playful. And it's, yeah, it's, it's so like, weird. So weird. It's a, yeah. There's something, but there's something that just so like it, that you, you categorize it earlier as just innocence. Yeah. Um, I, it was just really, it was a refreshing thing to watch after so long. Yeah, and it was so a super, it was a super fun time. The big thing with the presidents for me was when we started out, we had these dinky little guitars. We took all of Jason's cymbals away except for a hi-hat and a tiny splash. At, at one point in the early days, Dave and I were playing through the same amp. Three-string guitar, two-string guitar. These, were, these guitars were worth like $50 each. So when we did a show and we rocked out, I think the crowd went, had an empathetic reaction like, look at those poor dorks trying to rock. Those poor little dorky guys. Oh, go little dorks, you can do it. You know, like, oh, they're, look, they're trying to play Sweet Emotion. Go, go. <laughs> and then when we got signed and we actually got real amps and real guitars and Jason snuck the cymbals back in and we're standing in front of, you know, literally 25,000 people in Europe on a empty racetrack, all that was gone. All that striving, all that friction between the dorks trying to rock and the rock was, we were just rocking, you know. It's a subtle shift. I mean, the songs were still there. The themes were still there, the choruses and everything. But for me inside, I was kind of like, mm, this is just a rock band, uh, you know, uh, palette wise. Yeah. The palette is loud guitar, loud drums, screaming vocals, huge show. And that palette is not that interesting to me. I need more of a wider, broader palette. Natural transition to Casper to Casper baby pants, which I my my palette is super yeah. wide. I'm throwing bluegrass and classical and everything, smashing it all together, pop and rap on one of my latest records. I do a song called Bubble Rap, where I actually rap like a early '80s in a Grandmaster Flash style. Oh, <laughs> love that! Yeah, it's good. Anyway, well, I, like yeah, at some point. You mentioned earlier, you guys took a hiatus from the yes. presidents, came back, had a nice flourish. You did some stuff with some mix lot. Has also been on the show as a friend. Yeah, and you, you you played around, but ultimately you were looking for a canvas that was unlimited, and and as you described earlier, didn't have that that sort of adult crunchy yeah pretext or whatever yeah. you'd call it on the outside of your your kernel of a beautiful little idea. Yeah, innocent core. Uh, the big thing too, when I did have that light bulb go off and realized it was kids music was this like, whew, this sense of like relief because I was free of the culture of cool. There was no way I was ever going to be cool making kids music. Cool meaning like the flavor of the month on the late night, you know, cool meaning back to the, like reclaiming the peak yeah. of the previous popularity, which is, I think, the you know thing you wrestle with when you have a peak, how do you relate back to that peak as you go forward? Do you repeat it? Do you slowly diminish and be okay with that? Or uh, you know, we were just following the in the presidents. We were following the rock band uh, brochure, which is like you know, uh, have a meteor meteoric rise, uh, get overwhelmed, uh, make a, a mediocre second record. <laughs> go on tour, sales decline, break up, reunite, make more <laughs> records that don't sell. <laughs> you know, we're just following the instructions. Yeah. Anyway, 
yeah, the Casper thing came along and it was such a relief. I was like, oh, I have nothing, there's nothing that's gonna, I'm not beholden to that culture of cool at all. So I can just be myself. I can be that freaky, silly, funny, weird guy. And all of a sudden I realized I can start lumping in all my influences from my dad's influence with country and bluegrass to my mom's influence with classical and my own influence with rock and roll and even ragtime, which I learned when I was a kid and just rolling it all together. Old blues, old prison work songs, slave chants, um, gospel, and just mashing it and seeing what happens. So that's so thrilling. There were so many times with the rock band where I thought like, like visually I'm working with yellow, red, and blue. And now it's every shade, so. Wow. Yeah, I'm just, I really learned I'm not meant to be in a band. I was meant to be solo, uh, solo guy. And that's another thing creative people should think about. How do you relate to other creative people? Where are you, where are you able to be fulfilled and alive? Uh, I found that I'm more like a painter or a sculptor and it's less likely that you're gonna walk by a painter's studio and be like, hey, nice painting, can I paint on it? You yeah. know, that, no, that's my painting, man. Yeah. So anyway, I've learned over the years that I'm trying to do something very specific and every sound has got to be like knitted together. I, I think of it as like I'm making a little dovetail joint box. Every song is a little dovetail, dovetail, dovetail joint box. Say that. <laughs> <laughs> dovetail jump box. <laughs> okay, I can't. Anyway, so it's hard to make that and be ruthless. Like a lot of times with Casper, I'll end up taking out all the guitars because they're just obscuring the song or all the drums or you know, I'll boil it down to just piano and vocal after having all these instruments in it because that's all it needs. But the ego stomping you got to do in a band to get that is prohibitive. So, yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Isn't There's it? so much more, too. We haven't talked about child education, parent education, the Harlem Children's Zone. Uh, they could go on. Let's, and go, on. let's go into the let's education. Go to the second hour. <laughs> let's go into the, the education part. I think it's fascinating. Okay. Well, part of the experience of making music for little kids has been to become aware of the value of parent education as far as how they relate, how parents relate to children. Um, there's this guy, Jeffrey Canada, and he has a program called the Harlem Children's Zone in Harlem. And he was a counselor. I think this is maybe 25 years ago now. He was a counselor working with teenagers, trying to keep them off the well-worn path of, you know, dropping out drugs, teen pregnancy, gangs, crime. And realized one day, I can't fix these people. These people are set. I gotta get at them when they're babies. And he's like, oh, I can't get at them when they're babies. I gotta get at their parents because their parents are the ones who shape them as babies. And he did a couple years of recon work with volunteers hanging out with families in the ghetto and in middle-class America and contrasting the results of these like observations about how parents talk to kids and behave around kids and relate to kids and relate to kids when they're upset and in trauma. And he found what you'd expect uh, verbal discouragements in a place like Harlem are off the charts. You know, 80-20 discouragement to encouragement. Middle-class America, you got like 20% discouragement to encouragement. All that stuff 
you know, that's not the only factor, but all the factors, stress in the home, uh, friction in the parents' relationship, uh, nervousness about are we gonna have enough to eat tonight, yeah. nervousness about walking the streets, you know, you develop this like hard shell, this PTSD, this tiger in the jungle that's always sitting there waiting to pounce. And you can't learn while there's a tiger sitting yeah. in the jungle waiting to pounce. And you can't figure out who you are, or be creative or anything. So you harden. So his idea was to get at those parents and re-educate them about how to speak and feel empathetically toward their kids. And it has revolutionized culture. I mean, it's to the point where he has, so he started a, a parent education school. He started a, concurrently a preschool, and then there was a kindergarten and a middle school and an upper school, and he's created this whole system that kids can go through. And whereas when he started, he would ask one of his clients, you know, are you gonna go to college? They'd be like, hell no, you know, I don't care, whatever. Uh, he asks the new crop, and they're like, of course I'm going to college. You know, it's like, or of course I'm gonna follow my you know, bliss or my dreams passion, or my intuition, yeah. my passion. So where that was shut down before, it's now not shut down. And so my purpose with making this cast baby pants music is not, is way less about in reality, me trying to play with the wide palette and be who I am. I don't want it to really be about me. I wanted to make a tool that parents could use to lower the stress level in stressful situations, whether it's bored at home on a rainy Sunday and stuck, or stuck in a car in a traffic jam, or the commute back and forth to school every day where the routine gets dulling and the kids act up and all that. I wanted to make music that you could put in and it would elevate, same way the rock yep. club would elevate. Yep. I want to elevate that car or that living room on a rainy day or that bedtime routine to the point where the parents and the kids are both loving the same song. They're loving it for aesthetic reasons. Like a parent can really be like, yeah, this is a good jam. Yeah. And a kid can be like, I know, I can see, I I can see the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, so the challenge of writing that very thin line between uh, including the parent and the child has just been this like endlessly challenging. That's why I have my 16th record coming out in August. Because there's just no end to the thrill of finding that razor sharp edge where it's like, yeah, that's it, bam. And it's about, you know, really, again, building that little dovetail joint box. So um, I'm pretty excited and serious about the idea that the music really can help families be peacefully connected and joyous together. They can get rid of a certain percentage of friction and allow that to feel like a real shared experience and a, and a shared memory as they grow up and be like, you know, when they're 12, 13, whatever, they can put on a Casper song and they can kind of travel back and reconnect. So your performance though, this room, yeah. like there's the, the room at home when you're not there and they can play the record, but you perform a lot. As Casper, yeah. As Casper. I've done almost 1,200 shows. 12? Hundred shows in ten years, yeah, or less than maybe nine years, yeah, yeah. Because I do it by myself, yeah. So I can just I. There was a period where I was doing three a day, multiple days in a row. I've slowed down now. I started getting a shoulder issue because I play a three string and I have to grip it in a weird way. So I had to go to physical therapy and figure that out. Guitar shoulder, yeah, guitar shoulder. But um, 
I'm still after the elevation thing. I just, now I'm, they're much smaller bodies that I'm trying to elevate. <laughs> but also I'm including the parents. Like yeah. I'm really enjoying doing uh, bigger theater shows. I'm doing the Neptune twice a year and um, big fundraisers for parent education programs at community colleges and stuff. And the parents are definitely part of my consideration live too. I mean, yeah. there are parts where it's like, all right, parents, this part's just for you. And I want them to sing something. And uh, the call and response really works with them. And uh, so when the parents are engaged, my show can really expand. But my show can be anything because I have so many songs. I mean, I could sit down in front of 10 people in this, 10 kids in this room right now and figure out how to entertain them just by choosing the songs for the moment. I never have a set list. So I don't know what's gonna, what the room's gonna need. Wow, know? what would you play right now? To you guys? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I might do a little call and response, a little more moles. Thought I had a couple moles. Thought I had a couple moles. In my yard digging holes. In my yard digging holes. One day when I went outside. One day when I went outside. I could not believe my eyes. I could not believe my <laughs> eyes. 100 piles of dirty dirt. 100 piles of dirty dirt. <laughs> I was now on high alert. I was now on high alert. Under me 100 crawl. Under me 100 crawl. I'm gonna have to catch them all. I'm gonna have to Here catch them all. More moles. More moles. More moles. More moles. More moles digging holes. More moles. More, More moles. More moles. Yeah, it's the marching. It's the uh -huh. military cadence. So it's something you know. It's inevitable. It feels like everybody knows it, but now I've taken it and put my own More moles. <laughs> Which is a, br a brilliant thing you can do with old songs. You can like sweep off all the lyrics and build a new uh, story, but use something that's like got it historical integrity. So that's what I would do. <laughs> I just remember. If I were to sing a song in this moment. I remember, I'll go back to what I opened with, the just watching you perform for very, it was very gracious of you to do this, but like, to perform at our party and the whole it was just packed street completely packed full of partying adults and you had everybody on the ground <laughs> oh, yeah that was a good game like low 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 everyone's yeah, on the ground yeah, yeah. like i just had never seen basically a hundred percent adult <laughs> participation right and what what what's how did you how do you manifest that i don't know i don't know i think maybe since I put a lot of energy into being generous with the, like I put a lot of energy into writing songs that have that generosity factor and I include the concept that you, could, you should be able to hear the song once and then walk down the street and it's a gift that you have now. You don't need the radio or your iPod or not, people don't use iPods anymore. <laughs> You don't need the crystal set or the vacuum tube radio to listen to it anymore <laughs> or the wax cylinder. You can just walk down the street um, singing it to yourself and I've given you a gift. I've given you a song that you can enjoy. So uh, maybe because there's so much giving in the music yeah. when I ask for something, it, there's willingness to comply. I've never voiced that before or thought about that. So that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I, I observed it. It was fascinating. Yeah. Like, this is like, and these are all the like, <laughs> yeah. fanciest creative people in Seattle. Oh, it was, it's a mix. And we had dude. the hip hop kids. We had the record executives. We've got the 
titans of yeah. entrepreneurship in, in, in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> the, now, those are the most fun people to get to do weird things. We did a show once for Amazon at Sky Church at EMP, right? Okay. And this was, a, I think it was like a mid-level management party or something. These guys were, as I, oh, no, maybe it was F5. Well, we did a bunch of corporate gigs. Okay. And the corporate gigs, what happened to one of them, I think it was the F5 gig. Everybody showed up in the same blue Izod shirt with the F5 lo logo and khaki pants. That it was like a sea uniform. of middle management. Just, and we didn't know that was what was going to happen. So we got out there and they're very stiff. And, you know, we're rocking and they're stiff. And suddenly I just started channeling this weird voice and I started turning every song into a team building exercise. And I found a theme for every song to work as a team. I had them like trust falling off the stage, <laughs> catching each other, doing, you know, coordinated moves. And we got off stage and we were just like, what, what just was happened? that? We need a recording of that show. We need to become the corporate gig band Trained. of the universe. And we didn't write it down. We actually did make, we actually got so excited that we made, made like a, what would have been like a um, promotional uh, video to, pr to promote us as that band. And we made like pie charts and graphs, like your party with the presidents, your party without the presidents, that kind of thing. <laughs> Jason and I got together one time and just like made all this stuff. But then, you know, we're like, ah, we'll just keep That sounds it. hard. That was fun. <laughs> that was, kind of, that that was, was fun. Good But enough. we were excited enough that we almost did it. So anyway, being in the moment and treating people like they're, you know, I guess just like you acknowledging, just like explode the pretense. We, yeah, we could have just played the rock show to this sea of khaki pants dullards and not involve them. But it was an opportunity. It was like, all right, this is going to be a real drudgery if we just try to kick out the jams and get no response. So let's just, we got to break this up. Yeah, it was, a, yeah. it was a fascinating thing to watch <laughs> firsthand when you really hadn't hadn't seen someone master that right. craft and then involve like 100% participation. It was just remarkable. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a fun gag. Um, okay, so Casper allows you to do the things that you love, right? Sleep you, in my own bed yep. every night. I don't tour. I've sent out a signal to everybody. I've toured for 20 plus years, so it's your turn. And families come from all over the place to see shows. And I post my shows nine months in advance, so you can plan your vacation. Wow. That was actually an idea I had for the presidents. I pitched the band and the label, let's play five nights a week in Seattle during the heyday. Everyone has to travel to Seattle. Seattle's economy benefits. We sleep in our beds. And I got a nope. <laughs> From everybody, so Gotta now I'm now I'm doing it. I get to live my idea. And this is the nature of my question. Okay, like sorry. You, I, no, no. This is <laughs> like no. You just added all the color that would have been absent without oh, it. Okay. Like, you've basically designed if for everyone who told you it wasn't possible, you couldn't play rock music. <laughs> yeah. Turned it into a kids band because you wanted to have an impact on education and child connection and empathy, and not travel and make records and I'm just like the creative limitations mm, that you've mm, built mm -hmm. into the system and you've literally checked all the boxes. Yeah, I love limitations. I really do. That's why I play cool. a two and three string guitar because it forces me to figure out new ways to make that chord that I need. Yeah. That's fascinating to me and I think that's also, it's a, it's a, 
message to you know anyone who's watching and listening that no no you really can craft the thing that you want mm-hmm. and the examples that we see by and large don't have don't encompass all of the things like we like this about this thing and that about that thing and it's actually it's your job to put those to mash those things together yeah yeah and so anytime i find a living breathing manifestation of that like i want to highlight it and that's what you've done i you've you know again you've sold millions of albums but now you want to sell you know millions of emotional transformations yeah 11 kids at a time at a <laughs> at a mall show or whatever like yeah, yeah. like I don't only do tiny shows. It's true. And like I do the, big the, shows. the Neptune, the Neptune yeah, stuff Neptune, is, yeah. is big. But, I sell that sucker out. Yeah. But my point, <laughs> my point is that that it's doable. Yes, you've crafted, it is doable. You've crafted a thing, and how many no's have you heard along the way? None. You just gave an example of, nope, we're not going to. You know, people won't travel to come to see oh. you. You have to. Well, the thing is with Casper, which is another reason I shouldn't be in a band, is I'm the only one. I, a band. My band meetings are real short. <laughs> my band meetings are with my gut and my yeah. head, or you know,、yeah. my intuition. I just go, "Do I want to do that? Yes. Do I want to do that? No." End of band meeting. I just go tip, tip, tip. I don't want to do it.、Uh, so I've gotten really good at saying no. That's one thing that's after. Since Casper has really, you know, taken off, and there's a lot of demand for me to play live and stuff,、um, I've started kind of honing in on the shows I really want to do, and、uh, yeah, just get good at saying no. And then I say yes when things are really interesting. Like、awesome. I'm going to Montana in July. Mike McCready from Pearl Jam has curated a festival, and he asked me to play. And it's like he put together some crazy supergroup with like Red Hot Chili Peppers guys and Foo Fighters and Guns N' Roses and. So they're going to play, and him, and I'm going to play for the kids that afternoon. So amazing! <laughs> and hang out with those guys, and、uh, and then I'm doing a. I don't know when this is airing or if this is going to be post or pre, but、uh, May 30th,、uh, Rain Wilson is having a big fundraiser for the Mona Foundation. Yeah, we're both going to be there. Oh, we are. Yeah, okay, yeah. okay, good. Are you going to go to the dinner the night before? Oh yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah,、um, I'm playing at the. You know dinner, what? Well, actually, we'll, we'll take a picture and we'll send it to Rain right now. Rain wants me to play songs at the dinner, but I don't really know what I'm going to do. But let's take know, a picture. We'll do more. We'll send it to Rain. You know, All right. Text it to him. There you go. <laughs>、um, so I'm doing. I, I generally take the summers off, but I'm, I'm making exceptions to do you know quality of life things. Like、uh, I went to. Uh, what was it? A、uh, uh, Valve, a video game company, hired、yeah. me to go to Maui for ten days、Miserable. and play two shows for their kids, and、uh, all expenses paid for. Seasons, blah blah blah. So I was like, Jack, yes, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I might not want to go play a community center in Duluth, but、I'll, in the winter, but I'll go.、Uh, not nothing against Duluth and community centers. Love them. Love them both. But I, I may not want to sleep in hotels and be on airplanes for that. But, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we, I guess I'm at the point of life where I can kind of reward myself a little with, you know, interesting opportunities. Can we talk about an interesting opportunity that I was very grateful for, which was totally bizarre and amazing? When I got a great phone call from Chris, this is behind the scenes here. He's like, "Hey, dude, I got a,、um, I'm writing songs for Pokemon." Oh, that. Right, you we, made that video. Yes, which was amazing. I forgot about so, that. So you know, I mean, obviously, Pokemon is cultural. Like the zeitgeist is just、yeah. on fire. It's crazy, right? And 
they're introducing new the new Pokemon cards yeah. or something, and they hired you to write the song, That's and right. then we wanted to make a video about the song. Right, so then we got the presidents involved to make the video, and, and we went to New York and played the song live at an event. Yeah, I had to incorporate something like, I don't know, 57 or, it was a lot. I think it was 60 characters. 60 characters into a song. So it was just like, this one does this, this one does that, this one does this, this one does that. And we figured out a way to do a seamless. Yes. We, I think we did one, it in three shots, it but looks it was like, made to look like one. Yes, it, yeah. there was a couple whip pans in there yeah, yeah. that where we actually cut. Yeah. But it was, and everything in this video was, um, it was analog. Basically, yeah, there, was no, there was no, yeah, there was no, uh, digitization. No. So we built a very, very it's a huge set, right? Yeah. Because you're walking yeah. through the this set that we kind built, and everything is it's called practical, right? All practical of the things effects. are actually like walls are literally coming. Yeah, you got people behind, kind of moving yeah. elements. Yeah, and, yeah, all the all the art on the walls is animated, except yeah. there's a person behind <laughs> yeah. every picture that's on the wall, yeah, yeah, yeah. like. And then we made a behind the scenes about how we did that because mm -hmm. it was very complicated. Gee, that is amazing. There's so much to forget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot all about that. I need to go home and watch that video. Yeah, now. it's a good one. And for you folks at home, you should listen, look that up. Look up, um, Yeah. I don't know, what was it called? Pokemon? It was called Catch Em All. Catch Em All. Can't, oh, Can't Stop Catching Em All? Can't yeah. Stop Catching Em All. I Can't Stop Catching Em All. At the time, I didn't think that would ever leave my head. <laughs> How many times did you, oh. And the playback, when you're doing a music video, I don't know if you, you play the, the song over in the room over and over yeah. and over and over. And each of these takes, like we, we actually, we, we did a pretty damn good job. You were- We were, we were pretty economical yeah. with yeah. the takes. I think there were maybe four, five, six of each setup. And yeah, but that was still- Because it was so much to set up. So crazy set up. Like, yeah. and, and like, oh man, I, I pulled the wrong yeah. tab for the wrong critter who was supposed to be on TV. Exactly. That was just. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. We had the, the TV with the. We slabs. animated a, a. We drew a TV on the wall and then we created animations by putting pulling these yeah. huge sheets of cardboard in and out of the television. Right. Which is weirdly, I was watching a Japanese animated movie last night about raccoons. And there's a section in there where that's how they're telling a story. I think that's a, an old technique from pre, you know, electricity days for telling stories, illustrating stories, with a little screen it, uh -huh. and, and drawings, and you pull the drawings There out. I was, I thought I did mention It's an ancient, ancient Japanese secret. I just, uh, <laughs> I was really biting the ancient Japanese. Yes, there's a lot of ancient Japanese secrets in that video. But it was really fun to sit down and try and manifest a, a like a practical or physical idea. It's like physical comedy, Yeah. almost, when you're like, how do we, how do we go into this world? And I remember Jason Puccinelli painted all the, no, was it Jason? No, it was Lauren Dutton. Hmm. Lauren, Lauren Dutton. oh, he painted these, all of these amazing, his, all these scenes. Yeah. The, uh, God, that was just a crazy video. Yeah. Anyway. When was that? That was like 2005? Whew. I don't know. Check well, out the video though, it's a good one. Check out the video. Yeah, I'm jumping on a couch. I just think I destroyed that couch <laughs> after six takes. <laughs> As that, maybe that couch should be in the couch song. Well, we talked about, we talked, I didn't know the thread, the education thread about how yeah. you're educating parents to relate to kids. And yeah. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm educated. I, I just wanna, I wanted the, one of the things I always felt was missing for me in the rock band experience was, um, 
And a thing that kind of got me upside down in that experience was the uh, purpose of the music. I know it was to make people feel good and everything, but I always felt like there could be more. There could be some deeper or more effective, uh, you know, uh, byproduct of the music. And I guess helping families connect over the same aesthetic thing is what I was looking for. It's like that, that's as much as the song is a tool to make a room elevate, I think the private experience of listening to the records, that's the equivalent, is that the song has a purpose yeah. so that the whole family can gather in the same room and dance around because they can't go play at the park because it's raining. And so there's, I've created that, but I'm not there. The, the, the recording is like a surrogate me that goes out and makes the room elevate, kind of. How, how much have you had to fight for your ideas? Oh, fight, well. Fight is a loose word. Like. Kind of a lot, because I really wanted to quit the presidents right away. I actually also pitched to one degree or another everybody on breaking up the band immediately like pulling a Sex Pistols and just evaporating at the height of our perfection, you know, freezing it in this like perfect way. Wow. But that didn't happen, obviously. And then, you know, it's pretty alluring and pretty tempting to kind of just keep going. But I knew that it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but it just kept going and going. And so unfortunately, because over the years I've learned that I'm a people pleaser, um, there's an aspect because of how I grew up and there was te a little tension in my home and, when I played music, it made my mom happy, and I was like, okay, music saves people. <laughs> you know? yeah. And so I would say yes to things I didn't really want to say yes to, because it was for other people. And I, so I wasn't able to say what I really wanted for a long time. That's why the presidents broke up the way we did the first time. The first time we broke up very emotionally and like, I was, you know, flooded and just was like, I quit, you know, blah, blah, like that. Second time we broke up after having gotten back together after a five year break and being together for 13 years. And about five or six years into that, starting to feel like, nah, I don't want to keep going, but uh, here we go, next tour, next thing. Okay, we're making a record. It's just kind of this like machine that just keeps galloping along. But my resentment kept building, and so I went real hard into therapy. I do this therapy called Hakomi therapy, and it's uh, about conversing with your ego and your other selves mm. and having empathetic relationships with them because they're all trying to protect you. But to that end, they can make you be they can make you behave destructively, uh, not take care of yourself because they're selfish. So you get this relationship going with those parts and you kind of get this dialogue going and pretty soon you've got dialogue going with your former versions of you, like little kid versions and, and really understanding where all this stuff is coming from. And I got to a point where I like really understood this, you know, this uh, people pleaser thing, which is simultaneously my greatest strength because that's what I want to do with music and my greatest weakness because it makes me say yes when I really mean no. So getting that under control made it so that quitting the band for the second time was dispassionate, like turning off a light switch. It was just like, guys, here's why, here's my logic. And I gave them a three-year warning too. I said, you have three years. And sure enough, at the end of the three years, I laid it all out and very dispassionately turned off the lights. So it felt great. It felt great to do it again. That second act 
was brilliant. I always say that during that second act, I felt like I was in the greatest president's cover band ever. Because <laughs> like, I didn't feel like I wrote the songs. I felt like the phenomenon had, a previous me had started that phenomenon and a secondary me got to ride the wave in a healthy way later. So again, it was just in the rock and roll brochure. That's right, you just read the next step. The one, the one part we crossed off was drug problem. Yes. We didn't, we didn't go there. Yeah, you yeah. guys did a nice job of avoiding trauma uh, through drug. Yeah. drug uh, I won't say I didn't have my, my, my drinky problem. Sure. I did have my drinky problem, but, you know, I worked it out. Managed it? Yeah, I, I was definitely self-medicating there for a while. I was, you know, pint glasses full of whiskey. <laughs> There's a famous, oh, I don't know if I should tell the story. Yep, you should. Ah! You should. This is, okay, this is maybe we'll here. close with this. There was a famous time in New Zealand, I think it was, or Australia, I think it was New Zealand. We were touring around and tequila was the drink of the tour. So we have a bottle of tequila every night backstage. There are some tours I w used to go on where I didn't drink at all. Like I went entire summers in Europe, no drinks, because I was much better at performing and staying healthy when I didn't. But this was a little short tour. We were co-headlining with another band, 30 minute set, no warm-ups. Blah, party. It was my chance to party. So last show of the tour, we're partying. Uh, room full of people, tequila bottles half there. Uh, Andrew across the room motions like, pass me the bottle. And I took an empty pint glass and I'm staring, drilling right into his eyes. And I just poured the whole bottle in the pint glass and drank the whole thing. <laughs> and his eyes just got so wide and I got, I got real bad drunk. Like Dave Minard saved my life that night, got me out of bed, got me in the shower didn't let me go to sleep on my back, which is what I was about to do. Pure rock and roll fantasy, right? Yeah, did, did, <laughs> did the, the whole time when you were at the peak, you, did you really, was it really about the, the music? And is that what kept you away from all of the things that usually, oh, yeah. that usually uh, annihilate our, our, our rock heroes? Absolutely, because I wanted to have 100% of my uh, physical capabilities for the show, because it's a very physical show. Yeah. So I didn't want to be dragging at all. So I really respected the show. Yeah. And again, I didn't drink on lots of years of touring. Wow. It was just these one-offs, you know, I get into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> the next day, we are slated to do a promotional event where we bungee jump off of a bridge. In yeah, this Auckland. is New Zealand, right? Yeah, it's in New Zealand, or I can't remember if it's New Zealand. It wasn't the Sydney Harbor Bridge, but it was like that. It was a giant <laughs> spanning bridge, hundreds of feet over the water. And I'm so hungover, and I get up, gotta go do the promo thing. I'm not gonna blow it off, that's not pro. So we all go out to this bridge, and, and Jason and, and uh, Andrew are both like, oh yeah, we're gonna do it, for sure. And we get out to the bridge, and they start, we start walking up the spine of the bridge, and Jason and Andrew were like, I'm not doing it. This is crazy. There's no way I'm doing it. And I start talking to the guy walking us. I'm like, I don't know if I should do it either. I'm really hungover. He's like, you're hungover? Awesome. You have to do it. Because apparently the adrenaline that floods through your body erases the hangover for like three hours. So I was like, great. Escape from Sign pain. Sign me up. So I get up there and it's kind of interesting. They're like, we're going to count backwards from three, three, two, one, go. And if you don't go on the first countdown, you will never go. Because your, your logic will take over, your mind will take over, right? So I was like, okay, here we go. I go out on the little platform, one, two, three, I jump off. I don't remember falling at all. It, was, it, didn't, it made so little sense that I think I just blacked out. I came to kind of at the top of the first bounce and did the bouncy down, and sure enough, hangover gone. 
So it, it was remarkable. That's the takeaway. <laughs> that's, the, that's the cure. <laughs> All you rock and rollers, if you're out there on the road and you drink too much tequila, just bungee jump off a bridge. It'll, it'll give you three hours. <laughs> After three hours, eh, you're kind of back. Any <clears throat> Excuse me, any message they want to share that you haven't already shared with our listeners? listeners? I mean, I think I've shared all the messages. Um, you know, relax. You are a ghost driving around a meat-covered skeleton made of stardust. Take it easy. I cannot possibly <laughs> go beyond that. Thank you so much for being on the show, bud. All right, bud. Really appreciate it. Looking yeah. forward to our event next week. Yes. With rain. Um, rain, rain. Rain, rain. We're gonna, the I'm gonna, rain I'm, comes. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to send him this text right now. Signing off here from uh, Seattle with my good friend, Chris Blue. Check out, what's the best place for people to track you down? Casper? Babypantsmusic.com is Casper. And um, I have to say my wife's artwork, which you got to check out. Kate Endel. K-A-T-E-E-N-D-L-E.com. And I've got art shows coming up. What? Rendezvous, July 12th is my first opening, and I'm doing art. I'm doing black and white ego management uh, joy inspiration art. So, uh, yeah. What? Uh-huh. It's all black and white. Limitations. <laughs> I tried color. It's too complicated. Signing off. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you again, hopefully, tomorrow. Bye. Bye. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time. And whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that, that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn so check that out they're just slash creative live or at creative live all over out there on the internet all right until again uh, probably tomorrow i hope i'll hear you i'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and i'll look for your comments on the internets bye